Where are we going? It's difficult to explain. Please. Be specific. There are opportunities in life for gaining knowledge and experience. Go! everybody uh i'm murphy it's the last podcast of 2018 tom are you still out there communication received <laughs> yes You're how still are you there. doing my friend uh, pretty good we made it to the end of the year can you believe it we We're did still talking about yes. twin peaks well a little bit different tonight since it's the end of 2018 and uh, we decided to kind of expand the format a little bit and dive into one of lynch's older films one of our favorite films but also tying it together with Twin Peaks and this kind of more broadened, like instead of a unified lodge or dream theory, a unified Lynch theory. Yeah, Blue Velvet is a great Christmas time movie, probably one of the best Christmas movies of all the Lynch uh, overall. Although my, my dad, he made the mistake of putting on Wild at Heart with, not, with me not there. He's like, well, my boy said Wild at Heart was a wonderful movie, so let's put it on, all you religious <laughs> family members, and put it on. And they got to Billy Ray smashing uh, yeah, heads, and that turned it off. But uh, yeah, I think it's a real festive movie. I'm excited to see, and also to see how we can uh, build it into Twin Peaks and expand into like what the mythology is of of Lynch. 
Blue Velvet really is the epicenter of this Lynch land, this Lynchville, whatever you want to call it. Um, I, I look at it as, as a racer head was born out of uh, his frustrations of being a young man and a struggling artist and a uh, recent uh, husband and father. And what came out of that was a racer head. And I was also born out of the nightmare landscape of Philadelphia, which was in stark contrast to Lynch's like middle American, Norman Rockwell uh, upbringing. And it was just so stark. It was such a contrast that it really kind of fueled his, his imagination. And a racer head was the uh, seed which came from those experiences. And then, of course, he was a hired hand on an Elephant Man, and Dune was kind of not really a David Lynch movie per se, even though he wrote the screenplay. But it all starts with Blue Velvet and really the themes that he was to continue with um, in subsequent features, they all come from Blue Velvet. They're all pretty much, it's really kind of, like I said, the epicenter of Lynch. It is the suburban landscape. It is the immaculate, uh, seemingly immaculate um, uh, facade. Everyone looks good. Everyone talks proper. Everything is just, uh, it's suburbia. It's all roses and picket fences and, and uh, colloquialisms. And But then under the surface, you have the darkness, the ants, the evil that lies within him. He's been uh, dirty he's been bearded men, Tom. Lots of dirty bearded, bearded men, too. I think he's like, kind of like Jeffrey Beaumont is like young Lynch, going around town realizing that uh, everything's not as it seems. He's the avatar of David Lynch. Of all the films, I think, I mean, you could, you could say that maybe Cooper um, embodies a lot of Lynch traits, and uh, but no, like nothing in Lost Highway, and then you know Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire, more kind of female centric, at least with the, the main characters. I think Jeffrey Beaumont in Blue Velvet is a Lynch avatar. I think that um, instead of Lynch, you know, he was fascinated with the art life, becoming an artist, smoking cigarettes, and then maybe occasionally like a woman would come into the picture, as he would say. Jeffrey Beaumont is more into discovering kind of the hidden side within himself and getting involved in a mystery and uh, seeking that out and Lynch I think was trying to find his muse and I think that he found his muse in Blue Velvet you know that world and because we're not fully into kind of the supernatural the super dreamy the Mobius strips yet it's really more of a conventional narrative at least compared to his later work um, but uh, all the seeds are there all everything and it really is the epicenter, like I said, of Lynchland and everything else that, that I think it, it grows out of it, uh, at least from that point forward. And you can also, which we'll talk about a little bit later, we want to. I want to get into the film uh, before we start going deeper into some of the other films. The one thing I wanted to talk about related to kind of Twin Peaks, you have the two female characters, the Dorothy Valens played by Isabella Rossellini and Sandy played by Laura Dern, really the, the brunette and the blonde personified by the light and the dark, which is, I think, embodied completely later on by, by Laura Palmer. Does she think like uh, Lynch possibly like had his own detective agency in Missoula, Montana when he was a kid, like Encyclopedia <laughs> Brown? Like, uh, was correct. I mean, he was kind of like Jeffrey, like, probably looking around, like looking through windows, trying to find some mysteries to get into in Missoula when he was a kid. Well, think? that's the, that's you pause the thing. It? I would pause it, and I well, I would it. more especially than when he saw the would... dirty bearded men, Tom, in the woods. <laughs> the case oh, of the dirty bearded yeah. men was probably the first one. <laughs> case number one. <laughs> I actually was a huge Encyclopedia Brown fan as a kid, and me and my me friend was named Brad Francis. Actually, 
opened up a detective agency in front of his house and had made a sign and offered to solve cases for I think it was like 25 cents or a dollar or something like that on um, one afternoon and we spent like two hours there and we got no nibbles and that was the end of the, of the detec- detective agency yeah I had a detective agency as well and then no one came just like you and then we ended up trying to just like <laughs> dig up dirt on the city locals and so we could blackmail them so that it became a, a blackmail industry but we never got anything there either but, but, but so, uh, <laughs> soon turned to crime our theories. No, it's dark. You were saying about Lynch with the voyeur. That actually was the impetus for Blue Velvet. His idea that got him into this world and writing the script was the thought of sneaking into a girl's apartment or room uh, secretively, furtively, and spying on her. So was this just Lynch trying to fish for some deep uh, ideas, some ideas below the surface, or was this more kind of seedier side of Lynch's subconscious that he actually wanted to do that himself, but he was able to kind of turn these thoughts into his art? Because I think that's a consistent pattern. I think it, I've seen any number of documentaries, like his great friend Jack Fisk said, that um, if David Lynch had not become like a filmmaker, he would have been in trouble. <laughs> How's the peeping, David? Yeah, I think uh, Hitchcock also was quite the voyeur, you know. And I think you kind of have to be a voyeur to be uh, to want to be a director. I think a part of that is seeing the world. And he obviously has got, uh, yeah, he probably. I wonder if he ever tried it. I think he ever tried to go sneak into someone's like just or just maybe. I bet he's probably watched uh, through windows. Speaking of Jack, one-eyed Jacks yearning to go a peeping in a seafood store. <laughs> no, I think it's just normal. Like an adolescent, you know, when you, you're having these, you know, burgeoning like thoughts and feelings of, of these impure thoughts and, you know, if there's a, a girl that strikes your fancy, whether it's someone that you just you know, see randomly or someone that you know, you want to know like more about them and what better place in that their kind of secret private room their 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 personal space and you know <laughs> i think a lot of people think that but they don't act upon it i think that's a normal human thought i mean i think women probably have the same thought pattern maybe a little bit different scenario per se but uh, really i think we're we're built on like these mysteries and you know with the unknown we all have these thoughts and feelings that bubble up to the surface every now and again and nine, 99 times out of 100 we don't really act upon them because they're coming from like a darker place and Lynch's magic is just being able to take these thoughts and ideas and putting like picture and sound and creating like an original canvas and and, and making a living out of it and take us taking us into these worlds and I think that's why he doesn't love or like talking about them and describing and giving meaning to these worlds because I think that there's like a depravity or a sickness or you lose some of the the mystique, the aura of these worlds, of these dreams. So you think that uh, Kyle, when he says that he was really just obsessed with the mystery of it all, like telling Laura Dern's character that, that's why he was so interested in this whole case. Really, he was interested in Isabella. Is that what you're saying? Uh, I think there was like, you know, part and parcel. I think yes, and there was a little bit more. I think that it just, the, the way that it unfolded, um, by finding the ear. Like, and would he be breaking he's... into, like, Toad's apartment, you know, like in Twin Peaks? Would he be breaking into <laughs> Toad's apartment to undercover a mystery? I think he would have. I think, yeah. I, I think that it wasn't, because he didn't know anything about Dorothy <laughs> until he saw her at the Slow Club. Uh, so he didn't know. she. Exi- he knew that she was a singer. So she was really, Sandy was the one that got him involved in it. It was the idea of, of the mystery and the idea of the ear, which was, I think, the genius creation of Lynch 
that you know, because it is an orifice and that you can actually go in. He actually has the camera track into the ear as he's walking to Sandy's house to talk to her father about the case. And he doesn't come out of the ear until the very end after uh, the events of the film have, have you know come to its conclusion. So that really is kind of the first signpost of like, we live inside a dream. I don't think Blue Velvet is a dream, but he did take us into this secret hidden world. Are you the one that found the ear? How did you find yourself uh, loving David Lynch and get involved in the David Lynch world and specifically Blue Velvet? Uh, well, Twin Peaks was the entry point. Remember, I had uh, an, an, a girlfriend, an acquaintance in high school who was obsessed with Twin Peaks and had seen the first season. I had not even seen the first season when it came out, so she gave me her tapes, and I shared them with you, and we became obsessed with Twin Peaks. But I, the first time I had ever uh, heard of David Lynch was, I think, I guess it was watching Elephant Man on PBS with my mom in, like, 1982. It was a disturbing experience. But uh, I didn't really – I think I saw Blue Velvet. I watched the Oscars, I believe, in 85, and I think that I saw – a clip of Blue Velvet, which was nominated that year, and uh, and I think the first time I saw it was it with you? Was that the first time? Because I can't remember like seeing it ever, like before you and I were friends. And I think like you had it on tape, right? Yeah, I had it on tape. So we Did we watch to it together. Watch it, but yeah, we watched it together. Um, it was one of the first movies when the first weekend that uh, you you came over to my house. We became friends in, in sophomore year of high school. And you spent the night, or you spent like a whole weekend at my house, like in November of 88. And the first thing we did was my mom took us to like Blockbuster and we rented like seven or eight movies. And two of the movies we got were my two favorite movies of all time, Blue Velvet and Paris, Texas. And I remember you picked Student Bodies. I remember that was one of the oh, movies that you yes. picked. Oh, yes. I love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great And then Texas, we watched like four uh, or five oh, other yeah. ones. But so we did. So before Twin Peaks aired, we had like a love and appreciation of Lynch me specifically it was the same story like I saw Elephant Man as a you know like I was eight years old or something like with my mom but I didn't associate it with like David Lynch I didn't know who it was it was just like this movie that I saw and then I too watched the Oscars and for some reason I was like attracted to Blue Velvet I think I remember reading because I was into film at that time I remember reading this quote by Woody Allen who was up for Hannah and Her Sisters that year and that was like the presumptive favorite along with Platoon but uh, he, Woody Allen, someone asked him, like, well, what, what do you think your chances are or whatever? And he was like, I, I don't think I have any chance because like, I know what the best film of 1986 is, and it's Blue Velvet. He was just he was effusive in his praise for it. And my mom also had the Andy Warhol diary. Um, she was big into Andy Warhol, and she had, I guess, that that his diary came out. I don't know if it was before remember, it was a huge book. Yeah, It was a huge, a huge book. And yeah. I remember, like, reading it, and it was all, you know, chronological. And like around like 85 86 or whatever he had these little you know entries that discussed blue velvet and he seemed to be privy to like the production because it was before it actually premiered i mean he's andy warhol he's in the know he, he knew a lot of people but apparently i mean the script we'll talk a little bit about this but the script went through some changes in what was written and what we saw on screen there were some specific uh, scenes that got cut and 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 uh, and, were, and were altered. And Andy Warhol, I remember reading these passages. He was upset that some of the more seedier elements in the film got compromised. But then when he saw the film, he absolutely like loved it. But so there's all these little things. And then the one thing that I'd like I to see him be... singing "Candy Color Clown." Because, uh, <laughs> Andy, 
You'd be good in the movie. Andy's singing. That he looked about on set. Dave was like, just get closer. Get in the shot. Move in the shot, Andy. Get in the shot. And he's like, he probably wanted him in the movie. <laughs> but uh, the first thing that I, I had uh, cable, and I was like, I think it was 87 when Blue Velvet premiered, and I had uh, HBO Showtime and Cinemax. I didn't have the movie channel, but it premiered on Showtime. So, but right before, like, they would, like, you know, have these blurbs, like, Blue Velvet will premiere, like, on Saturday night or whatever. But they had, like, a behind the scenes, like, a little five, seven minute promo thing that I saw before I saw the film. And that was, like, so fascinating. And that really even amped up my, you know, curiosity and excitement level. But to this day, even doing all these like thousands of like you know YouTube rabbit holes, I've never come across that little video ever again. And like part of me is like, did I make that up? Did it not exist? Because it wasn't on the DVD or on all the DVDs or whatever. So, but I recall vividly seeing that, and then watching the movie, it was it was perfect for a very like personal reason. It's because I grew up in the inverse of Lynch. He grew up in all these middle America towns and wound up in Philadelphia and that's where he kind of found his muse. But um, I grew up in like a big city in Chicago and then I moved to suburbia where I, where I met Murphy and Arlington, Texas, where we grew up. And it had the distinction for like the longest period of time of being like the largest city in the country population wise to not have like mass transit. It was just like just ridiculous. So we grew up in this real like suburban. <laughs> that's true. Like <laughs> it's true. That. Yeah, that's true. It's it's just a kind of backwards Arlington, Texas. It really says a lot. But I lived on a street that looked very similar to the street that Jeffrey lived on, and I was uh, and he had come home from college and he didn't know anyone. All of his old friends had moved away, and uh, and I we we actually moved to a, a different section of town when I was. 14 or 15 by the time I saw the movie and I was I lived on the opposite side of town so I was not close to my friends so unless my parents drove me to the other side of town I was stuck and so I kind of felt like I didn't really recognize this as 15 years old but this is all like you know with perspective like I kind of felt kind of like Jeffrey in and seeing that film like the images were like the images I would see outside my house and actually like a couple years earlier when I was 12 or 13 I um um, uh, lived in an apartment complex and my friend was over and didn't really have much parental supervision at that time. It was really late at night and we would just go do like kind of crazy things. We were kids. We didn't get in dangerous things or whatever. But we came across this guy in this adjoining apartment complex that he was, it was like two o'clock in the morning. He was laid out like in front of his apartment, like on the grass and he had a gun by his side. Like he had actually like tried to like, commit suicide, but <laughs> he, he was wearing a dead. yellow jacket. Yeah. He was not wearing a yellow, but we freaked out and we, we didn't get like too close to him, but we ran back to my apartment. By the time we got, uh, got back to my apartment, like the cops had come or whatever, but it's, it was very kind of Lynchian. So I think the reason why I was so uh, attracted to Lynch and the world of Blue Velvet and eventually Twin Peaks is because of some like personal experiences that I, uh, I had as a child. Yeah, well, that's a good that's a good story. I didn't know all that stuff, but uh, I think the Yellow Man keep... actually was a good uh, good example of like the kind of men that we lived around and grew up around in Texas. Like, come on, get a move on, John. Like that guy. Uh, <laughs> Are you going to tell that I... story, by the way? <laughs> uh, no. Well, there was a story where Tom and I did have to move one of our friends' uh, roommates back to uh, San Antonio while we happened to be on acid, and uh, yeah, we had to get there at four o'clock in the morning, and uh, ended up getting there and. His uncle came to greet us at four in the morning. He was very upset that we were on acid at four in the morning. And he was going, come on, John, get a move on. And Tom was doing the uh, impersonation, and I couldn't stop laughing. And that really is a, the, one of my best memories, indelible memories, 
of uh, of all blue velvet is that moment. You go, you get a move on, John. Come on, get in gear, pal. <laughs> Every time I watch the movie, I have that flashback to that night. Well, a literal, not a literal flashback, but yeah, that was it. It was a, that character. I think it was Detective Gordon was straight out of like Texas. And yeah, every the, coach we had, every teacher, like it was just a very exemplary. That guy is very much like the dudes that we grew up around. Very scary. And we knew they were always very up to scary. Something, these guys. Yeah, we knew there was something there. These, this guy showed it. He was up to something. Yeah, and what we did was we would just somehow to deflect the whatever the whatever the fear or, or whatever we were feeling at the time, we would kind of you know uh, punctuate it with uh, an anecdote, like a movie quote. And a lot of the times it was like Lynch related. That's what we did. I mean, we were yeah. constantly you cut the awkwardness. Making... It was a very awkward moment. Yeah, and you used yeah. a film quote from Twin Peaks. Yeah, from <laughs> Love it. it worked out well. Well, so I thing... felt like this was really exemplary in my town because I, I grew up in a lot of small towns in Texas. So I never came from the big. Well, you had something very similar. I mean, you grew up in a very like small town in East Texas, and then you transferred to Arlington, this idyllic world. And I I would say that the street that you lived on was probably even looked more like the blue velvet street because it was a little bit more affluent. Yeah. A lot, a lot of Tremont houses, a lot of, it was very similar to that. So that's why I, it's kind of, what's one reason why I did like, uh, was drawn to Lynch because he eases you in to the Americana world with like charismatic actors like Laura and Kyle. And you then all of a sudden you get slammed with like, uh, Frank Booth. And like, I think Frank Booth, that was the big standout Dennis Hopper in this movie, uh, that still is disturbing. Um, and really, like, he's kind of an early uh, version of Bob. You know, it's like the evil, the the ultimate evil in all of Lynch's movies. He was kind of like the first example of that. Yeah. Unless you include, was, like, Anthony Hopkins <laughs> from The Elephant Man. <laughs> he wasn't. No, it was more kind of Freddie Francis Baron Harkonnen, who played yeah. the, uh, the, yeah, or, or Baron uh, Harkonnen. But, Harkonnen, uh, yeah. Yeah, but the one thing that Blue Velvet does not have that Twin Peaks has in relation to Leland or Bob is that supernatural element. I mean, Frank Booth is, he's a real person. And he is, whether he represents the id or the darkness um, or just like, you know, pure like evil, but it's it's in human form. He's a white trash psycho. He was kind of like Leland. He was like a, he was an earthly psycho. He wasn't an otherworldly psycho. Before Bob, you know, before we knew about Bob. Well, he also, I think, like if, if anyone, any other villain in the Lynch universe, I think that would be similar to Frank Booth. It would probably be, be Mr. Eddie in Lost Highway. Very similar characters. I mean, they're just like, just at a moment's notice, they could just pop off, you know, spewing profanities. There's humor in their anger and violence. And this watching Blue Velvet, for me, Blue Velvet, the reason why I think it, it, it endures and why I, I love it so much and can rewatch it endlessly is because depending on the time of day or my mood is that it, it never like the, the feelings that, you know, the film somehow evokes within me are never the same. Like sometimes it's like, it's very funny. Like I even like Frank, Boo, like that quote, like Lynch had when he was directing the scene of Frank raping Dorothy Valens it's just a horrible scene in so many different ways and I think shocked audiences tremendously in the 80s and and probably to this day the story is that behind the camera Lynch was like cracking up and everyone was like kind of looking at him going like (laughs) what the fuck is wrong with you and he would explain granted Dennis Hopper that was funny it's kind of funny (laughs) well that's that's what I'm saying is it's like and I that's I think why like Ebert like Cisco and Ebert which we used to watch that's how we he hated it. That's how we would like. He always hated Lynch. What's up with that? Until, until Mahal Drive. Mahal Drive. 
Lin, uh, Ebert had this kind of like you. We'd always because we watched a lot of Siskel and Ebert. Like back in the day, we really held their opinions in, in high regard. But we always kind of would joke, like between Siskel and Ebert. Ebert was kind of like he was. He loved like kind of like the 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 kind of the sexy, the more lurid kind of like characters or stories compared to uh, Siskel. And especially like any movies that had like any kind of lesbian theme to it, it seemed like yeah. doesn't matter what the the it, the, the remember the story SNL sketch or, <laughs> from oh, the eighties yeah. with uh, Phil Hartman. <laughs> And they were doing it every time, every review, like whether Roger Ebert liked it or not, he'd go, and the sex was hot. Like the say, he always said the sex was hot. So that's, yeah, that's and that's true. Thing. So when Mulholland Drive came out, there was the he liked that know, one. iconic for him. sex scene with uh, Naomi Watts and Laura Herring. I was like, oh, so now you're finally coming around to it. You don't like, you know, anything else or whatever. But, but the, getting back to the Hopper thing, it's like, that's what is so unique about Lynch and it's why he was never fully embraced by the mainstream. I always said that line is that David Lynch never went mainstream. The mainstream came to David Lynch during Twin Peaks because that scene of Frank and Dorothy Valls in the apartments, it's like seven minutes long. There's not a lot of cutting and it's like very disturbing, but there is like a comedy or it's like, you know, a disturbing humor that underlying, underpinning the, the, the terror that she's experiencing and that, that that's just that's not by chance i mean that was deliberate you know it's a combination of lynch's screenwriting his direction and the performances and the sound design everything like that but you know it's not to say that rape is funny or anything like because it's not we all know that it's not but this is a movie maybe Valens he's trying to lighten the mood like, on the on set maybe that was it no, I think it's like built. I think that he thought he created Dennis Hopper's character. Then Dennis Hopper took it so much further that he, like Lynch found him like this. I think he compared him to like some kind of like like a like a, a dog in like a, a candy shop, like eating all the chocolate. Like it was just he was rabid. He was ravenous. He didn't care what he was doing. That the chocolate would make him sit. He just couldn't control himself. And for some reason, that struck Lynch as funny. And, would have been and even funnier if he used the helium. Oh, the helium my God. story. Tell that story. Uh, well, you know the story, but like uh, the whole thing, I don't know who told him about the nitrous oxide. I don't think that Lynch knew what nitrous oxide was, right? But who told him that? Right. Like someone said, hey. But anyway, before, in the, in the, uh, it was originally he was supposed to be sucking on helium. And he'd be going like, daddy wants to fuck. And that, that would be bizarre. <laughs> but right. there would be no reason to be sucking the helium, you know what I'm saying? But the nitrous oxide, which makes you talk like this, like it gives you, you know, obviously like you're having laughing gas. But wouldn't it be bizarre if they had used the original helium? That would have been completely fucked up. Yeah, plays into the whole Oedipal theme of baby you know, mommy, Ooh, baby, daddy, and then Jeffrey being some kind of like the child. Do you think it would have been a little bit too disturbing? Like you think uh, if uh, they'd used the helium voice, the baby voice, it would have been a little bit too much? It would have been nominated for Oscars and lauded just for that one move? I think in the time, it would have probably taken the audience out of the scene and would have been like It'd be more too... horrific. It'd be like a horror movie. I don't know. That's a good question. I, I think like over time, like it it might have played better or stronger because of the you know the psychological implications and the subtext of this whole Oedipal thing, yeah. as opposed to like the reality yeah. of that like, he's taking nitrous oxide to get disoriented and he's just regressing. So it is interesting, but that's how Lynch fashioned the script. He's a sick. <laughs> <laughs> they should have done it though I but, think they really should have because they could have had like Frank like getting hammered on uh, Pabst Blue Ribbon or whatever it is and Black Tar Heroin and then going in and then pumping out the old uh, helium tank just for effect just for terrifying effect which would have freaked us out and would freak out Isabella as well and it would have been part of his whole sick fantasy his daddy baby wants to fuck thing it would be totally freakish and it would have been more like a horror movie I think fuck that shit 
Paps Boo Ribbon! There are only three real scenes that Hopper has. But you think of him like he kind of dominates the movie like his presence does. But really, he's only in three real scenes. I mean, there's a couple scenes where, you know, you see the, the well-dressed man. And speaking of the well-dressed man, I mean, how far <laughs> I didn't know. That? It took me like two, two viewings before I realized it. No but... Um, but what his like the motivations? It's the whole. If you really like analyze the script of Blue Velvet, like the plot, you know a lot of it really kind of doesn't make sense. And the second half of the story, it really races to its conclusion. But Blue Velvet probably needed to be a series. I'm glad it was a film, but if it, it somehow could have it like could have, it could be rebooted, so it could actually be a series now. The problem with that is that we've seen this whole like idyllic suburban. It'd have to be all about Frank, like Frank Booth, like just running amok. The part of me wants to know what Frank is doing outside of Dorothy's apartment with his with his crew and and the other townspeople and even the parents. I mean, it really is the Twin Peaks in its infancy. But as opposed to like Twin Peaks, where the or, or Blue Velvet, where the darkness, the red ants were below the surface, were really kind of represented by what was going on in Dorothy's apartment and Frank Booth. With Twin Peaks, it was, wasn't was necessarily what was bubbling beneath the surface. It was like more what was bubbling within, within the characters. And that's where I think like Lynch kind of grew as an artist because what I think of Blue Velvet is, is that Lynch returning to the familiar setting of his middle American upbringing as a confident artist and and birthing this this whole new like Lynchian the, the word Lynchian probably was born from this film but with Twin Peaks more specifically with the return in 2017 he's returning to that familiar like setting and milieu but not as the confident artist because he's still the confident artist but he was returning as the enlightened one someone who has gone through 40 50 years of transcendental meditation and this spiritual journey that you know he he's he's partaken in the whole TM universities and his relationship with the the, the Maharishi and, and a lot of the, his experiences are infused in the return so i like that contrast of uh Lynch being more the the confident artist in blue velvet and more of the you know the enlightened one in Twin Peaks to return because that's what we got and someone who really doesn't kind of give a fuck someone who's at really the end of his his career I, I hope he does more but it would be kind of a fitting ending uh, to his au revoir of basically infusing the return with all of the themes and symbols and theories and spirituality of a lifetime do you think if Cooper has been in the lodge for 25 years, right? And we posited in our, I don't know what unified part theory we called it, but the idea that the entire Dougie storyline was just uh, one of his many dreams he's been having, dream realities, you know? And then in 18, you go into like Laura's dream. Um, could it be that the Blue Velvet is one of his multi-realities that he's lived through? He could, go, he could have gone through a million timelines and had a million adventures in the lodge. He could have had one where he was Jeffrey and a... Uh, Diane was uh, Laura Dern in this. I could totally see it. Kind of, it kind of fits in. I think that discussing Blue Velvet as this epicenter of Lynchland, I think that the characters of, of of Jeffrey, embodied by Kyle MacLachlan, and then Dorothy and uh, and Sandy, I think that he's carried those but archetypes. Like, 
the archetypes, thank you very much. You're way smarter than I am. Throughout his entire au revoir, and Cooper as a Jeffrey Beaumont 5, 10, 15 years later, because the seeds of finding stuff within himself, the, the secret world, and wanting to be a detective and sneaking into girls' rooms, you could see that leading him to go to the FBI. And Sandy, you had a very interesting thing about this, is that what she would have done, what do you think her character would have done after leaving Lumberton, because I don't think she would have stayed in Lumberton like forever, right? Uh, she would have sold insurance or become a paleontologist <laughs> and gone to a Jurassic World. <laughs> name me five <laughs> Laura Dern movies. No, don't do this to me. I can't. I can't name them all. If Cooper is kind of, uh, I would say, an avatar of Jeffrey Beaumont which is an avatar of David Lynch, but you see like strong similarities between the two. For me, I can see Sandy's character, Laura Dern, going to Hollywood and becoming an actress, getting out of like Lumberton and becoming the character in Inland Empire and going to Hollywood per se and knowing the people, the characters in that film, but also knowing the characters that populated Mulholland Drive. And also with Sandy's character, you could see the whole similar theory of, or not theory, the, the, uh, the possibility of Lula in Wild at Heart, like a fantasy. Like yeah, someone I could see who, that Sandy would want to, like, what her fantasy would be to, to be Lula, you know. Yeah, to be sexually liberated, on the to road, have bad boys, this, yeah. yeah, the rock and roll boyfriend, and it's the whole thing about running from, like, the repression. And she's running from, you know, her mom, and that, and she was molested by Uncle Pooch, and she's got, they got all these people like following her, that she's living this fantasy or dreaming this liberated fantasy. She's highly sexualized and desirable, and that's part of the Sandy repression. You know, well, see, her, that's right, know, but, but see, okay, dream. so maybe her repression was implied or whatever, but like we never really saw her as a failure in writing. That we ne- what was her character turn in Blue Velvet? What did Sandy what do, do you to mean? grow or change? How did her character turn? What was her arc? I think her arc was uh, similar to Jeffrey, but not as pronounced. You you see everything in Sandy's life from just the one or two scenes in their home. Is that you know she's probably a, a, an only child, affluent, um, expected to do the the right thing, has the high school football quarterback as a boyfriend, and here comes this older guy, college guy. And he's a little mysterious, but she's also she also knows things too because her her room is above her um, father's office. So I think she's got a little bit of that kind of mysterious, like kind of the, the detective in yeah. her. Well, some peep, maybe, maybe, yeah, she's and, and, and I think, and she's the one who facilitates Jeffrey's journey. She gives him all the information that she could pull out at any point. But I think she was a little detective too. I don't know if you're a detective or a pervert. No, it's for me to know and you to find out. She was just like him. You're right. But she didn't want to take action. So she probably saw her idyllic world. Well, I guess she was probably getting cracked already, like you said, by living above her dad's office. But like to see, you know, just this was a what a bizarre fucking story taking place to see and to see Jeffrey get, get involved with it. And to see Isabella running around naked and Frank Booth and people getting shot and killed. And that's completely mind altering. So maybe she did end up becoming a you know mentally unstable actress in uh, Hollywood after that. Well, I think she wanted more out of her life in Lumberton and that pre that scene where they have the dance and they they profess their love for each other and then then they find Dorothy naked and Dorothy's saying like he put his disease in me like repeatedly <laughs> which is like hilarious. I mean, and she well, see maybe like okay, wasn't that you're right there was a scene where like they were at the sock hop or something is that what you're saying? 
in Blue Velvet? Yeah, they had the dance, the slow dance. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, see, but there, maybe I would have believed that she was an actress that they had like all gathered around and like had a you know had a big performance because she didn't seem like she was much of an exhibitionist or very gregarious, Tom. But she did have the picture, the poster of Montgomery Clift in her bedroom. Oh, that's right. Okay, there you go. I'll give you that. So there's that. that. And then she forgave Jeffrey. I'd rather. I think after... she'd be a paleontologist. Actually, I think she's going to end up in Jurassic <laughs> Park. Diane, eleven thirty a.m., February twenty fourth. Entering the town of Twin Peaks. It's five miles south of the Canadian border, 12 miles west of the state line. Never seen so many trees in my life. Yeah, Twin Peaks seems like uh, it could be living in the same universe as Lumberton. You could have like crossovers like in Laverne and Shirley and Happy Days to where like they, uh, they seem like they exist in the same realm. Doesn't it seem like Blue Velvet is that small world of the euphoria of a forgotten childhood? Lynch shot Blue Velvet when he was, I think, in his late 30s. And when he returns to Twin Peaks, he's using some of those same kind of memories, but he's like kind of expanding on it. And he's like expanding the themes and, and turning them into a mythology because I really think that is the the jumping off point for the second half, latter half of Lynch's career. And Twin Peaks really is in the middle of his uh, orvois, so to speak. And it's that jumping off point where he's taking his past and he's using that iconography. Lumber, red curtains, all the different stuff. It's all kinds of these little, you know, his, his, his elements. All the elements are in here. They grow and flourish into all the bizarre, weird shit. When did you think he got the supernatural element? You know what I'm saying? When did that come into play? Was he touched well, okay, by so- the devilish one? Really, you could say the second season premiere with the the introduction of the giant. But my question to you is the the dream sequence in the first season uh, was that really kind of the first strains of the supernatural, or was that just strictly a dream sequence that turned into the mythology of the Black Lodge and the supernatural? That's a good question. So maybe that was it. Maybe the and did Mark Frost not know anything about that? Like tell tell us tell the story about like how that came about. Like why was that? Or was it just a fun interlude where they, cause they, did they shoot it for the pilot too? Like when did they shoot that thing the first time? Yeah. So he was told Lynch and Frost were told that um, they had a unique deal for like twin peaks, like uh, the pilot, like if it didn't get picked up, they were going to go ahead and make their money back by selling it as like a movie in Europe. So they required like a closed ending because the pilot ended with Jacoby digging up the, the, the necklace. So they go, or they, the money men said, oh, well, you got to you know, come up with an ending. And they didn't know what the hell to do. So Lynch was, he was I think they were editing even, uh, because it had already been shot, if I'm not mistaken. And he was with like Dwayne Dunham, I think he tells the story. And they were outside the editing suites and uh, Lynch was leaning against a car and it was a warm day. And he either put his hand on, his car, on the car or he was already touching it. But he said the whole scene, the red room scene came to him in that moment. And he realized that was the closed ending. So he wrote what we saw uh, in the uh, episode two in the, the, or the uh, the international pilot of the, the, the Cooper dream sequence. But it wasn't a dream originally because if you watch the international pilot, it cuts to a title card that says 25 years later. But once the series got picked up and Lynch directed his only episode in season one other than the pilot – he incorporated it as Cooper's dream, and it didn't say 25 years later, even though he told Truman and Lucy the next episode that his dream did take place 25 years later in the future. 
So, so in his mind, think, the future was the future was just a really weird place. Twenty five years later, looked like that. Every place looked like the like the red room in the future in the pilot. I think it was real, but Laura, if you have a deconstructed scene, Laura is she hasn't aged. Cooper is aged, so there's got to be some supernatural element to it. There it is. Unless it's yeah, a dream. See? Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Right. So of course. Unless it's a dream, but then we find. See, I think what's happening is, it, it, and you could say this for all of Twin Peaks because that that really is. I mean, we have what thirty episodes, a movie, and then eighteen more episodes. There's a slow evolution of the mythology. I mean, I'm just as guilty as any number of people trying to connect dots from season three with season one. And there's a lot of inconsistencies and there's a lot of things that you can kind of stretch the imagination to kind of make a link to. And the fact or the reality is, at least for me, is that they didn't know a lot of what was going on, at least when they were shooting it in season one. They didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't know what was going to happen. It was a slow evolution. So you can't really go with season three and go like, aha, there might be some strong symbolic or thematic things, but it's just more stream of conscious. It's just so fluid. And it's a testament to Lynch's genius as a a filmmaker and, and with Frost as well, that they could layer their show with so many, and their characters with so many different facets and mysteries and the mythology that you can make these connections, even though they weren't intentional. So that's it. That first scene was the first time he delves into the otherworldly. I imagine him like in his, did he, in his autobiography, was there a story where he was like in Missoula and like he met some, uh, scary hobo who like did like a magical three card Monty game on him or something where I like, you know, <laughs> so like, now, like with a corn, now you see me, now you don't. And he became fascinated with it. Magic, <laughs> magic, <laughs> Because magic know, leads, his fascination of magic leads into the supernatural. There's a great story right. when he, I think it was him and Jack Fisk in Europe when they were you know, trying to live the art life and they were taking a train and there was exactly what you were describing, something like a three-card Monty magic trick. There were these bugs that Lynch and Jack Fisk had never seen before and it really was what eventually became the the, the frog moth in, in season three. And Lynch had this experience as a young man. So who knows what other experiences that that one was on a train. It was like at, okay. a, at a stop or whatever. But the pilot really has the, the same DNA as Blue Velvet because there really isn't any supernatural elements in the pilot whatsoever. Um, and it's this procedural. It's basically, it's, it's Jeffrey Beaumont as an FBI agent returning to the you know, small town of his youth and and realizing that the, the, the bugs that were beneath the surface of Lumberton are now in all the people and the secrets that they hold and the procedural of, of the investigation of the murder of, of Laura Palmer. And it's, it's very matter-of-factly, the way that it's shot, the paste and scored, the dialogue, the character, it's very blue velvet. You've got the diner, the trucks with the logs. You get a sense that this really is the same uh, world, the same world universe. of Lumberton. Yeah. But by the time he comes back and directs the second episode of um, the first season, something changed. What did he get into TM? Dude, he got into TM before he shot Eraserhead, like in the early 70s. Did he visit the Maharishi? This is David uh, talking to you in front of Maharishi's house on the banks of the Ganges in Uttarkashi. First time I've ever, ever been here, even though I've, we've all heard about it through the years. That moment in time, like in 90, 91, 92, I think was a very fertile ground and a point where, like a departure point. And really, I think it starts in the second season of Twin Peaks because Blue Velvet becomes Twin Peaks and then Twin Peaks second season becomes a whole new spiritual realm where he introduces the giant. 
So something was happening. Yeah, maybe he was going through like a mental breakdown or something. Was he going through a divorce with Isabella? Maybe he was having <laughs> some demon dark nights. I think the success of Twin Peaks from you know the first season freaked him out a little bit. And I think that he, whether consciously or not, I think he rejected the mainstream. And I think it's personified by the opening of season two when people were literally turning the channels during that opening scene, something that we absolutely loved. But he took this whole thing of like, who shot Agent Cooper? And like, are we going to find out who killed Laura Palmer? And he introduced Senior Jewel Cup and the Giant, and he played it out for like 15 minutes and like with like, you know, eight lines of dialogue. And then that whole other, you know, the whole episode is really, I mean, it's our favorite episode because it's so different and that's what I love about it is that he's evolving as an artist. So he's taking Blue Velvet and he's, he's he's basically creating a mythology of the White Lodges and the Black Lodges in this this purgatory, this afterlife, his own version of a secret world that is not below the ground, but it's parallel to our own. He's This is the, the fertile ground where he is playing in that mythological sandbox. Yeah, he couldn't go mainstream, man. Can you imagine what he'd have done if he had uh, taken uh, Return of the Jedi? Would have gone crazy with Ewoks. Not very uh, commercial-minded <laughs> guy. Don't search for all the answers at once. A path is formed by laying one stone at a time. The Black Lodge, with Lynch's shooting at the end of the second season, the series finale, he's basically using as a launching pad for you know what will eventually become. Uh, I think kind of Inland Empire with multiple identities and dream worlds and then eventually the return. So it's it's interesting that like you see the Blue Velvet connection with Twin Peaks. It, it, like you said, it's a similar universe. But by the end of the show, he's taken the Twin Peaks and the Blue Velvet into a otherworldly realm. And it, it's it's gone forever because when we return in the return, some of the characters might look familiar. Uh, and some of the landmarks, but the feeling and the mood and the subtext is is completely different, never to be seen again. It's, I think he just uh, grew up. I think like think of this like the Blue Velvet was like a beginning of like the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew mysteries, like the Lynchian Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew mysteries gone amok. Tori uncovers like the the living demons on Earth that are Frank Booths, and they go and they they help people, they save people. It's like they are like little Encyclopedia Browns. And Lynch wrote about that, and the Twin Peaks also is kind of like that in season one with like Donna and like you know all running around Sparkwind Twenty One, and he, and even like Cooper felt like a grown up Boy Scout, a grown up Encyclopedia Brown. But then instead of looking around and they found the evil in the town, but then it turns out to turn like there's evil within, within himself. And even, like when you talk about like the otherworldly supernatural stuff, you could also make an interpretation that really all it is is looking inward. Like he's, he's it's all cracking within himself while he's trying to be a Boy Scout in the world and that he's seeing all the, de- the devils in the lodge, which really could be the devils within him. And he's Just like expanding. Leland, the original interpretation of Leland, you know, the original Firewalk with me was that really Bob was just a, a metaphor for the real evil that Leland was molesting and raping his own daughter. It's like teetering right. on that line. And he's, that and he's expanding over. on that in, in season three. I mean, he's taking it to a whole new level by showing us. Um, the fireman's domain and where NATO resides. You know, one thing I'll admittedly say that I miss about 
the return was that I was really hoping that Cooper would come back and we would get a little bit of the old Coop, the old Nancy Drew, the old like Hardy Boys who had like the the wonder about the world. It would like be so excited about the chocolate bunnies and his recent discoveries and when coincidences happen and all that stuff that ties back to like Jeffrey Beaumont was completely missing in the return. And I still miss that. But uh, I guess he was still, even when he's at the fireman's realm and in the, in the lodge, he still was uh, one of the Hardy Boys. He was just Johnny. silent. He was just quietly observing. <laughs> the auteur Lynch and all of his films and the evolution of his characters. Like if you think about Eraserhead, which was his first film, and we discussed this a little bit earlier, how it was born out of Lynch's place in, in his life at that particular point. But if you think about if, if, if Jeffrey Beaumont and Cooper are fraternal or, or one in the same, but it'd be interesting to think about Eraserhead with Henry Spencer and Mary X um, played by Jack Nance and uh, Charlotte Stewart as a nightmare version of Jeffrey and Sandy if they never left Lumberton and weren't able to explore the world and were... Um, got saddled with a child that Lynch did not want. Child. Right, right. And he was dreaming of like this ladies in the radiator in this other world. It's like that was a nightmare. And we were talking about Lula or... Um, Sandy with like Lula, that that's maybe kind of a fever dream that she's having if she was kind of stuck in Lumberton and she had this wild at heart storyline with this bad boy, Elvis, you know, stud, so to speak. And, it's her uh, masturbation this- fantasy, Tom. <laughs> Lula's Which ties into uh, Mulholland Drive and Naomi Watts, like her masturbation fantasy. Yeah, in a way, like uh, Sandy could be like a, a, a bizarre uh, schism inside Laura Dern's character in Inland Empire when she's going crazy as well. That's true. And how would you relate? Instead of her Sandy becoming her, she could be dreaming of being back and young and fresh and unencumbered un, uh, as Sandy was in a past life, a past reality. Well, what about Cooper and his relationship to Diane in the original series and then also in season three? Because we didn't know it was Laura Dern in the original series. And it almost seems like it was a, a foregone conclusion that it would be Laura Dern. I think everyone kind of predicted that. So Diane is Sandy. Um, Sandy is Diane. On one level, yes, yeah, because it makes sense. Yeah, we're going with if Cooper, if Cooper really is an extension of Jeffrey Beaumont, and his most trusted ally in the whole world wouldn't even wouldn't be Cole, it wouldn't be Albert, it would be Diane, and we never saw her, but it would be, and that would be that would have a connection to Blue Velvet because of the relationship that was forged between Jeffrey and Sandy. But with season three, with no real mention of Annie. Um, related to Cooper and it really being Diane who's coming out of the NATO and going along with him on the journey in part 18. That's almost like a what if scenario from blue velvet. And I think in the behind the scenes of the DVD doesn't, don't they kind of like kind of commiserate in that hotel room when they're talking and Lynch is blocking the scene and like, it's just like blue velvet, like you know, 25 yeah. years later or something like that. So, you know, yeah, so maybe Jeffrey stuck around and, yeah, maybe Jeffrey stuck around and took Sandy to prom, and then Mrs. Tremont in Blue Velvet gave him a painting. Then <laughs> it all started from there. The <laughs> yeah, it all started from there. Well, it, it, with like Lynch as an artist, what's interesting is the it's not really an outlier in his au revoir. I mean, I think it's his bleakest film, even compared to Eraserhead, but Lost Highway. Lost Highway could be considered the midlife crisis. Uh, film crisis of David Lynch because of where it comes. It comes after Firewalk With Me and before this uh, renaissance 
of Straight Story and Mulholland Drive. And he went his longest time between features from Firewalk With Me to Lost Highway. And it seems like Lynch in creating that story is maybe dealing with on a subconscious level, this identity crisis with the main character in a story who's an artist, a musician, but still an artist who seems to be successful, but within the walls of his home, things are breaking down and not what they seem. And at another level of reality, that was Lynch's home that they shot in. So obviously Lynch is so metaphorically. Not- so metaphorically, Bill, when Bill Pullman cut Patty Arquette in half, that was really Patty Arquette's severed body was really firewall could be in his mind. we've met before haven't we there is that parallel identity crisis and i think lynch was going through it and a creative identity crisis at the time and he created the pete dayton character who was the the young viral monkey wrench so to speak who got the hot blonde who is a representation of his former wife and i'm not saying we're not trying to say that Lynch is putting himself in all of his works, even though I think as an artist it's impossible not to have some parts of you come out. But with Lynch, it's always through these many layers of of abstractions and symbols and what have you. But it does seem that Lost Highway seems to be that point, another point of departure where he's finding himself as an artist again in his place in the world. And then right after that, he comes back with the double, you know, grand slam of the straight story and, and Mulholland Drive, which are set in two completely separate universes. Yeah, so he was like in the Infinite Lodge plane, and he could have gone back to conservatism. And, and like, a, uh, if he had Dino De Laurentiis edit uh, Lost Highway, maybe it would have been a big, bigger hit, Tom. But he didn't. He, he went the other way. He went further into the, the, the infinite void with his madness. Lynch's filmography, what movie compares closest to Lost Highway? Mohan Drive. And what about Inland Empire? I need to see that again. I only saw that one time in the theater, and I've not seen it again since, so I can't accurately judge. I remember watching it in the theater thinking it was like over like two hours in, like on Hollywood Boulevard (laughs) when the Beck song came up. And I stood up, and I was like, what a great movie. And I started walking out, and they were like, dude, you got two more hours to go. And I think that I, I kind of zoned out the last two hours. So, Well, don't you think that maybe Lynch dealt with some things creatively in that film that and, and maybe satisfied certain aspects of his, his creativity from maybe a personal point of view with Lost Highway and maybe this creative identity crisis? And he was able to move on uh, to the straight story, which I don't really I mean, it's a Lynch film, but he didn't have any uh, he didn't write the film. So I don't really kind of put it in this universe that we're discussing. But with Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire, we're dealing with two films that are set in Hollywood where he's lived since the early 70s, but dealing with female characters like he's never dealt with before. I mean, we had Firewalk with me with Laura was kind of front and center, but you know that was the prequel to the television show. Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire, I think we're dealing with maybe Lynch coming to terms with his feminine side. So the lesbian sex is, scenes in Mulholland Drive was Lynch exploring his feminine side? Well, not specifically the sex it. scene, but I think it's it's we're talking about the evolution of, of this artist and how all of these movies that he's he's written from kind of a pure standpoint um, are are related in his universe and how and how they might relate to I think the burgeoning artist of his childhood because it seems like all of this stems from the the youth 
the uh, iconography of the 1950s, which he you know returned to in in uh, season three in part eight. It's always there, but he's creating at least with Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire these uh, female centric characters. But are they somehow related back to? the Jeffrey and the Sandy. Well, maybe like the whole Lost Highway Mulholland Drive thing was like Lynch, Jeffrey Beaumont finally moving to the big city and getting corrupted by Hollywood. And so you get to see like the even darker side and you get to see maybe he uh, started to uh, feel empathy for some of the uh, actresses he met around town. (laughs) And he started writing stories about them and thinking like, geez, how hard must it be? Rejection after rejection. I couldn't take that. So maybe that's how he ended up like uh, writing Naomi Watts, who was like a surrogate, you know, Jeffrey Beaumont. Um, obviously treating her quite poorly. I think he gave Jeffrey a much better ending, I think, than he gave Naomi. So uh, there's that to, to consider. Maybe he likes torturing his uh, his actresses a little bit, like horror directors. But, uh, yeah, I think that's uh, – it's like the two worlds, the rural, rural, like country mouse, city mouse. There's country lynch and city lynch. And so we get to see these two worlds, and that's pretty much what he's created for us other than the supernatural realm. Right. right? What right. other world is Wait, he, he? Has it a musical? Has it a western? Has it got anywhere else? There's Vegas. No, there's New York, I guess. It really is this kind of Lynch multiverse. And if you think about like the geography of it with like Los Angeles being the hub of Lynch and the the three stories of Mulholland Drive, Inland Empire and Lost Highway are set in this this urban sprawl of of Los Angeles. And then you go a little bit outside of it. You have the Blue Velvet and the Twin Peaks and the suburban aspect of it. You want to go even further, you can go into the Midwest with um, uh, the straight story. And then the the Eraserhead, which is, you know, technically it was shot in L.A., but it was really kind of a Philadelphia story. But I like to think of it as it's just a nightmare. It's just a nightmare story. It takes place. I mean, it could take place anywhere. It could take place, like, in a different, you know, world. I mean, the first shot of that movie is going to a different planet. But then we have Wild at Heart, which is this kind of southern gothic road trip to hell. But with all that being said, with the geography of Lynch's films, um, I like to think of it, especially with what we got in season three with the idea of this kind of loop-de-loop with Cooper and Laura and Cooper doing any number of kind of choose-your-own-adventures with the, the Lodge and always winding back and this kind of eternal recurrence and this just never-ending loop. These these Lynch stories that I just described with the, uh, described with the geography, they're happening like simultaneously. It's going on right now. Like the Lynch world it, it, it's not of a specific time and place. It's all part of the same Lynch mythology. Uh, no, I think what it is is going through like a, an artist's uh, influences and inspirations and things that that make uh, him want to become an artist is certain themes and ideas and archetypes and tropes and all that stuff that, that is like a, ingredients in a chef's kitchen that he begins using and then developing and adding on to. And so you get to see that, oh, here you got some salt here and some pepper, and he uses cayenne and everyone. You can tell that he's got the certain the fundamental ingredients in uh, a story like Velvet that built out into all of his other stuff and got progressively weirder and weirder and weirder. Well, he's gotten more esoteric, though. The supernatural aspect of it uh, kind of begets the dream within a dream within a dream and the loop-de-loop. And that seems to be where he is as an artist narratively, creating these stories and these characters, creating new identities and going to new worlds. And if he wanted to, he could create a wonderful Twin Peaks season three that was like seven episodes and was super tight as fuck. And everybody really probably, it could have been very accessible 
and some of our friends that turned it off and couldn't understand anything would have liked it more. But he doesn't choose to do that because he doesn't. He knows he can, but he's going to do what he can, he gives a shit about. And he wants to actually. It's almost like me getting into horror movies lately. I've not really liked horror movies, but now that I've been into them and you've been influencing me to see all this classic horror, now when I see a story, I kind of want it to be a little more extreme now because I'm, I'm hooked on the horror. And so he kind of saw the horror of the world, the intensity of everything, and he wanted a bigger hit, a bigger dose of, of fright and mystery. And so he started amping it up more and more. And it's like he's uh, when David Nevins allows him to have pure heroin lynch, he's going to give us box monsters and all kinds of pure heroin, heroin versions of the, 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 the Frank Boost of the world because he can but it seems like he's fishing in the same pond where before he was fishing in different ponds and coming up with different ideas it seems like he's fishing in deep in the same pond but he's going deeper and deeper and deeper so i think he's found something that is fascinating to him well obviously some a girl in trouble that's everything (laughs) yeah Yeah, but it's like it unfolds upon itself and it's the mobius strip it has no beginning and end it just goes like the affinity symbol from philip jeffries like he's going deeper he's like in the mariana trench of ideas there's what we saw in blue velvet was this confident artist who is like jimmy stewart from mars and now it's it's not even like jimmy stewart from mars it's not even recognizable it's like he's on fucking jupiter man and he doesn't have a face he is completely in his own alien world, and we are the benefactors of that as an audience. I just saw uh, that horrible movie Ready Player One. Like maybe when the future, some gamer who's a huge twin, a Lynch fan will create like a Lynch first video game that you can go and immerse yourself in and go to all the different uh, Lynch Lynchscapes, the cityscape and the the, the ruralscape and the uh, otherworldlyscape, and you could be a video avatar and live in Lynch world. Would you like that? As long as it was kind of like with the Star Trek, the next generation, didn't they do like the holodeck thing? Where yeah, like you the holodeck, actually, yeah. I would do that. It would have to seem real. But no, you'd be, would you'd you really... be a character in the story. You'd live it. You'd be living the story. I don't know if I'd want to live in like a Lynch world for too long. I would you, to hey, dude, like you Luke said Velvet. you would like to, if you died and you got sent to the lodge, you'd be very happy with that. Well, because there would be an afterlife that that would confirm something, you know, a consciousness. <laughs> and Lynch is God, maybe too. You'd be like, well, maybe Lynch is God then too, as well. You know, when we die, our brains die, right? And so whether we go to an afterlife or not, like our brains give us a little video, uh, last final go out. And so perhaps your own brain will will put you in the lodge. Through the darkness of future past, the magician longs to see one chance. Out between two worlds, fire, walk with me. But he is presenting it to us in his own Lynchian abstract fashion. It's going to take us decades, or it might take us forever to kind of even scratch the surface of what he's already found as an individual, but he's giving us this gift as a creator. But he's not going to give us the answer. So maybe your whole thing with Lynch's God might have some merit. Well, he's God to you. He's God. He's a God to me. He's not the God, but he's a God. Oh yeah. And uh, so he's he's moved on into the, into the nether realm, and uh, we'll never be going back to Blue Velvet again. I like to sing Blue Velvet. People, this is easy. There's like an hour of deleted scenes of Blue Velvet, and these deleted scenes, which I think were lost for a long time, then Lynch rediscovered them, and you know he put sound to them and everything, and they need to be seen if you're a fan of Lynch or Blue Velvet. They're kind of similar to the missing pieces in some way, but the way that they're edited together is almost their, its own narrative. In the movie, you have the iconic opening of the, the firemen and the dogs and the roses, and then the, the heart attack, and then the bugs, and then you're in the story. But... 
the way that it was uh, shot was that you had that, but then you had like a neighbor come out and discover the body. And then you went to college where Jeffrey was at a party and he actually sees like a date rape. And so it, it kind of, uh, uh, he doesn't just see it. He peeps on it. He's a peeper. He's a peeper. Yeah. And he doesn't do anything until like, he doesn't do anything until someone calls his name. And then you see him, you actually see like a plane land and you see him get picked up and you, you see him drive home and you see him go to his room. So you had like 10, 12, 14 minutes, whatever it is of this setup of this character and that you didn't really need. Um, so I would have performed like 15 or 20 minutes of just Frank Booth, like methodically murdering his entire family. (laughs) Just going out a complete like you know <laughs> madness bender to where at the very end like Jeffrey Beaumont is like Nick Cage at the end of Mandy. <laughs> that's why I think we need a blue velvet. <laughs> I think that's why we need a blue velvet television series because I would love to explore the Frank like Booth character doing all those things you describe. I think that's a good idea. We should pitch it. <laughs> Let's pitch it to DL. Although I watched the the cut scenes and I thought they were you know yeah. The There's nice. some good stuff. You know what I like? Like the little bits of the Francis Bay character played by, or yeah, his Aunt Barbara, who's Mrs. Francis Tremont? Bay, who played Mrs. Tremont. She has this little mini, mini subplot of thinking that their house is infested with termites and she has this scene with Jeffrey where she goes I think the house is infested with termites and then there's another scene where she's got like her cane and she's banging it against the wall (laughs) and like she sees like two bugs like fall to the ground and then she writes Jeffrey a note going like see like you know look what I found those are the little touches oh yeah speaking of that what's the last line that she says in the movie when uh, about the bug I liked it I could never eat a bug (laughs) Mrs. Tremont says she could never eat a bug well, yeah. we posit that in the return that she certainly ate a bug at some point in her life. Like <laughs> I know, and you know what's also interesting about traumatized the whole her, like yeah. the bug like symbolism with the you know, the you know the the evil or the darkness lurking you know below the surface is that and this is something that I never I mean I knew this but it just picking up on it and putting it kind of together like consciously as opposed to subconsciously because you know it was fairly obvious is that Jeffrey his whole. Uh, initiation into this, how he gets involved into Dorothy Valens's world is by pretending to be the bug man. That's right, to be the bug man. I forgot about that as well. And that they're also, he's there because she's been seeing a little uh, frog moss floating around the house, like creeping around. That's why she called him. (laughs) (laughs) On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a body dead wrapped in plastic. On the second day of Christmas, my true love gave to me two secret diaries and a body dead wrapped in plastic. On the third day of Christmas, my true love And we're thankful for that. Uh, but we do hope everybody will go around the, the holiday table. And if you got to watch a movie to watch, I'd, I'd, if you, it's going to be a, a David Lynch one. I'd choose Blue Velvet. You would start with Blue Velvet because I think it's... The most accessible. I don't think it's a Christmas movie. If you had to watch one David Lynch with your family, it doesn't matter who your family is or what the circumstances are. What would you choose? Probably Mulholland Drive. Probably Mulholland Drive. I enjoy watching them. Mulholland Drive. I think that's what I would choose as well. Even though Blue Velvet is my favorite film. I've seen Blue Velvet too many times. I've seen Wild at Heart too many times. There's certain things I've seen too many times, like Firewalk with me. So probably that. Any uh, final thoughts for this episode? This very special year-end episode, Tom? Since Filmstruck ended and I got the Shutter app, you've been watching these horror movies and you're like loving every minute. You're in a whole new world of horror movies that uh, that it's like the undiscovered country. It's like the dark continent. And uh, we're able to talk about this genre that I've loved my entire life. And I'm thankful for that. 
That's a great. Well, I'm glad I could give that to you. I wanted to, uh, and also I'm glad that you gave it to me because I think that that's a, I've got the the horror bug, and now that I'm 45 years old, I think I'm not as scared as I used to be of watching these movies, especially the old classics. Um, so I'm embracing them and I'm loving them, and now I've got a whole bunch of other new cool content to watch that uh, falls right in my wheelhouse. So thank you for that, Tom. Thanks to Joe Bob Briggs as well. I've been watching his show, and I liked people oh, that could God, give me yeah. like uh, you know a little history on these things, these movies. I like to know the ones that are the classics because I really I'd never seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I never seen anything, so I'm seeing all this stuff for the first time, and it's probably psychologically scarring me. But I'm really enjoying it, you guys. And I, there's nothing that I've turned off yet. So I think uh, it's just an extension of our love for Lynch because Lynch has always been my favorite horror director, and now I'm just seeing a little bit more graphic version on things like Reanimator. So. Hey, I love it. Happy Horror Christmas, everybody. See you next year. But Blue Velvet so, okay, was probably so, it was his most commercial movie, right? Blue Velvet, even though Frank Booth. Other than that, what do you mean commercial this, movie? It's all because of Dino, you're saying. Because of Dino De Laurentiis cracked the whip on his ass. If we saw a three and a half hour version, it would just be a complete melee, right? Just madness. Yeah, it was two and a half hours like in the lodge was the cut part, like just complete like abstraction. Like you, there was no abstraction. No, you saw the deleted scenes. You know, there no, weren't No, I wasn't that excited about it. I watched like five minutes of it.
none of this stuff was being was shown in the first season to it. And I think that's why it's so accessible. There's hardly any supernatural elements in season one. Yeah, maybe he was going through like a mental breakdown or something. Was he going through a divorce with Isabella? Maybe he was having <laughs> some demon dark nights. Dark nights of the soul. Well, you know, he was transitioning from Isabella to Mary Sweeney. Yeah, did he, so he already... When did he ghost Isabella? Didn't he ghost her? He just stopped calling her Yeah, back? I think right after... During Wild at Heart or right after Wild at Heart? He could have at I least given her... Also, it's not you, it's me. <laughs> One, two, three. If you close the door... The night could last forever Leave the sun shine out And say hello to never All the people are dancing and they're having such fun I wish it could happen to me But if you close the door I'd never have to see the day again